Lord, we thank you for your word that once again guides us today in this journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, forgive us for our many falters and failures. Uh, Lord, convict us once again. But thank you, too, that your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness abounds. So, Lord, as we continue this journey together, set me aside. Let it be your word that we need to hear today be spoken clearly. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see that light that you offer to shine upon us today. In your precious and holy name, I pray. Amen. As we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, two things I want to remind you of and ask you. Whose words are these that we hear today? Jesus' words. If you have the Bible written in red, they're in red. These are words Jesus speaks to us. And there's a theme, an overriding theme throughout this Sermon on the Mount. Anybody remember what that theme might be? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about both of those together. We have explored the attitudes or the beatitudes of those who seek to model life in the kingdom of God and what that looks like and the blessings that come from them. The Beatitudes also remind us at the end that even though there's blessings, there could be potentially, probably be persecutions too. But our response, our response to the world, as Kevin shared last week, is to be salt and light to the world. Today, Jesus reminds us of righteousness, right living, what that righteousness looks like. And he has a standard by which he refers to, a standard by which the Jewish people lived. Their life was oriented around this standard. Anybody know what this standard might be? Three letters, begins with an L. The law. The law. Now, what law... Am I talking about it? What law is Jesus talking about? Any idea there? Ten, Ten Commandments is one of the words of Moses and the prophets. It's the first five books, the Pentateuch, that the scripture offers us. There are 613 laws that they were to follow. Imagine. And there were thousands of interpretations of what those laws were and how people were to live these laws out. It was a conglomeration of legalism inundated with rules and regulations. Sounds fun, huh? Today, though, Jesus begins by relating or helping us understand what his relationship to the law is. So let's journey together in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Online, I hope you'll have your Bible or devices here. Please refer to your Bibles, your devices. There's a little red Bible in the pews if you want to follow along. I also invite you to have a pencil or pen ready as I'll be referring to some other verses throughout the sermon today. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of one letter will pass from the law until all is 
accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this was the week that we took our son Davis to college. Happened a little earlier, but he has already begun classes and the intense requirements are already there for him. Thinking of that journey and today's sermon, I remembered an illustration about a student who went to Cambridge University. It was the end of the semester. It was time for examination. And so this student, as he entered, he approached the proctor and he said, I would like my cake and ale. The proctor looked at him a little dumbfounded, not quite understanding what he was asking and thinking it was a little absurd for this student to ask the proctor for cake and ale. And so the, or the proctor asked him what he's talking about. And the student pulled out the 400-year-old laws of Cambridge, which were written in Latin, but were still in effect. And one of those said, gentlemen sitting for examinations may request and require cake and ale. Well, this is a community that followed the law, and this was the law of Cambridge, so the proctor had no choice. In negotiation with the student, decided that Pepsi and hamburgers would do. And so the proctor went and got the appropriate accommodations for the student and brought him back and the examination began. Well, that's not the end of the story. A couple of weeks later, the student was summoned to the Office of Academic Affairs. He was to face disciplinary action, not for asking the proctor for cake and ale, but because he had failed to carry out another law, a law that said a man must wear a sword when he's taking an exam. Well, he was fined $5, which ironically was about the same price as his meal, or five pounds, the same price as his meal at that time. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Probably one of the most powerful statements Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. The law was the standard by which the Jewish people lived. It was the standard by which their life was oriented. So for Jesus to come and say this had to get to their attention. And I'm sure caused a reaction, especially among the leadership. The Pharisees. What were they always accusing Jesus of? Of breaking the law. Remember healing on the Sabbath? And you also had others who thought Jesus, he had come and he's going to disregard the law. In other words, he's going to put the law in a new light and we don't have to follow those 613 rules and regulations anymore. But that's not what Jesus said. He did not come to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill the law. He came to bring out the real meaning of the law. That would replace these volumes of legalism and interpretations. He's not bad-mouthing the law. What he's seeking to do is build upon the original intent of the law. We get a good idea of what Jesus means as we begin to look 
at the Ten Commandments. Do you remember who the first four of the Ten Commandments focus on? God. That's a safe answer, right? That it focuses on our relationship to God, our reverence to God. And the second six, or the second half, the other six, who do those focus on? Others. Our relationship to others, our respect to others. Following the law, Jesus says, is not about obeying these petty rules and regulations. It's not about legalism, but it's about love. It's not about specifics of what you can and can't do. It's what we should do to mold our lives around God. So there's still this tension. There's still this tension between how can one not abolish the law, but still fulfill the law. Well, Jesus says it's not just about the law, but who else? The prophets. The prophets. Who were the prophets or what did the prophets do? And that's something we could talk about for weeks on end. But three quick things to share with you this morning. The prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah. There's, only, there's over 300 references and prophecies about Christ that the prophets share with us. They also foretold about the kingdom of heaven. The minor prophet Daniel in chapter 2, verse 44, one for you to write down. Chapter 2, verse 44 of Daniel. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all of these kingdoms and bring them to end and it shall stand forever. The prophets foretold of Christ's coming. The prophets foretold of the kingdom of heaven. The prophets also foretold of a new covenant. A new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 33. I'll share just a few of them. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Until the law and the message of the prophets is fulfilled, what did Jesus say we are to do? Verse 18 that I shared with you this morning. We should stand just as or the law will stand just as creation stands. The verse says, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law. It's like us saying, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will pass until the law is accomplished. So if the law still stands, then what are we to do? Verse 19 directs us to that. One is still to follow the law. Follow the law now in the present tense. And follow the law to be part of the kingdom in the future tense. Break the law and our status in the kingdom becomes to be questioned. Questioned. I think there's some questions that we need to answer then. What is it? Or what is the law that we need to follow? And I'll answer that. But first, I think there's another even more important question. Did Christ actually fulfill the law. Yes. 
We know that. We've seen that through his death and his resurrection. But John speaks to that in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. I hope you'll write those down. John 17, 1 through 4. Jesus, in his prayer to God, is pouring out his heart toward the end of his life. And he says these words. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So as a result of Jesus' life, of his death, of his ministry, of his work, what is it that we've been given but a new law? A new covenant that Jesus calls us to live out. And what is that law? Or what is that new way? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapter 5 and 6 and 7 that we explore together this morning and for mornings to come. It's in these teachings that Jesus still contrasts the old law and the new law. We still see this tension between abolishing the law and fulfilling the law. On one hand, the old law condemned the outward actions of a person. You can't do this. You can't do that. But the new law, Jesus is taking more of an inside look at a person, at their heart. In other words, it's about righteousness. About right living, Jesus says. Living that righteousness out in the light of the kingdom. That's contrary to the Jewish interpretation of following the law to the T. But it's in harmony with the original spirit of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not reacting to the law itself. He's reacting to the way that the law has been used and interpreted. And I'll even say abused. It's kind of like the student at Cambridge who thought he was clever in his use of the Cambridge law. The contrast between the law of Moses and now the law of Christ is between legalistic interpretations and applications of the law of Moses and the righteousness that Christ expects of those who seek to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus then brings it home. He speaks to the point, I think, of this issue that people are facing and seeing, and he names it. He calls it out. Verse 20, we see to all who seek to enter the kingdom of heaven and their right, that their righteousness should be greater than those of the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the scribes? The Pharisees were those who debated the law. They discussed the law. They had meetings to talk about the law. The Pharisees were men of position and supposed authority and supposed respect. The scribes were those who wrote out the law that was being discussed. They, they wrote it in the books. They wrote the contracts. They legally carried out the law in proceedings and daily works and business and such. So if those of kingdom's righteousness should be greater than those righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, then what did the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes look like? Good question. Jesus addresses these in Matthew 23, which help understand. One is that the, Sadducees, or the Pharisees excuse me, and the scribes 
often said, do as I say, but not as I do. Do as I say, but not as I do. They would speak the truth. They would debate the truth. They would call you to follow the truth. But they wouldn't follow it. They also pointed to themselves and not to God. The Pharisees and scribes liked to be seen. To sit in important seats. To wear important clothing. To have important titles. Was important. More important. In their actions. We also see from the scribes and the Pharisees. That they would major in the minors. They love to get in debates and arguments on the dotted I or the cross T of the law rather than the true intent and heart of the law. We also see in Luke 16, 13 that they had a love of money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they ridiculed Jesus. So if the righteousness of those who seek to live life in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, then what does that righteousness look like for those of us who hope to be a part? We practice what we preach. We practice what we preach. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, we hear the parable of the man who builds his house on the sand and the one who builds on the rock. A story of action that calls us to live out that which we have heard through the Sermon on the Mount. A vital story to preach, to live and walk the talk and practice the preach. Matthew 6.1 reminds us that we don't preach and pray to be seen. We also realize that our righteousness should major in the majors. Not, in the, not by neglecting or abusing God's commandments, but, but carrying out the heart and intent that they offer. And also we see that our love is to be a love of God and not a love of money. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth together. The focus of the scribes and the Pharisees was the law. That was their motivation. The motivation of a Jewish life was to satisfy and carry out the law of God. One could technically, I guess, do that. I mean, you'd have to follow 613 laws every day. So that sounds pretty miserable to me, and not just miserable, impossible, but I guess technically you could. The motive of the Christian is love. The aim, the focus for a Christian's life is to show the love of God. This is possible only because of the love that God has for us and his offer and gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness shown through Christ. Susan and I are finding ourselves in a place that we have to trust in that love a little bit more these days. We spent 18 years teaching our son who he is uh, called to be, created to be, the rules and regulations that parents uh, lay out, right? We all do it. But now the trust comes. 
that God's love for him will care for him, that our love for him will care for him, that he'll share and show that love to others. It's not about the rules and regulations anymore, or some maybe, but, but it's more about the love that God has for him and our love for him that we share and he shares with others. It's on his own now to make those decisions in facing the many decisions that life brings. We trust God's love for him. The great theologian and one of the early fathers or fathers of the early church, Augustine, summed up the Christian faith, summed up the Christian life in one phrase. Love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. Now, you can't separate those two. It's not do one and then you can do the other. It's not an if-then statement. They have to be offered together. So in the next few weeks, Jesus tells us through our continued exploration of Matthew 5 of what life looks like and how we love God along the way. There won't be an examination at the end. You won't, be get, you won't receive cake and ale or Pepsi Coke and hamburgers. But I promise, as we begin to hear and understand of what that life looks like and how we offer that love of God, our life and our witness will speak to these words of how well we understand Jesus' teaching and how we seek to share that love of God with others and with God and with ourselves. Love God. And do what you like. The name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Lord, we trust you and we trust in your love. We desperately need and seek that love. We ask for that love. We pour that love upon us, upon our situations and our families. Lord, we understand the life you call us to live. Or, or we're beginning to understand of what that life looks like. And it's hard and it's not easy. But Lord, we recognize the opportunity we have to make your kingdom, to, to be a kingdom builder who makes your kingdom a little more reality here on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, forgive us lighter paths. Show us the way. In your name we pray. Amen.